If you have your Bibles, whether on your phones or on paper, um, I'd love you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 20 to 28. So that's Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. I'll give you a few moments to find that while I find my place as well. So during the summer months, we um, have taken a, a, a hiatus out of our regular um, preaching passages. So we have been going through the book of Acts at Sunday at 6, and we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians at uh, 10 a.m. services. So this is a little bit of a chance for us as a leadership team to kind of pause and to reflect and just ask God to help us to think about what, as a church, do we feel we, we need to know, something that's good to do, a bit of a topical study and a topical view in terms of what God wants us to speak on. So last week, um, Helen um, preached on legacy and what it means to leave a legacy and how that legacy is sometimes different to what the world sees as legacy. And um, out of the springboard of that, I was thinking and praying while on holiday just about what does, what, what, what le- what does leading a legacy mean in terms of practically in our hearts? What does it mean in terms of wanting to leave a legacy for Christ? But what, how does it, where do we start? And I always think that when we go and think about where do we start, we go to Jesus. And we think about what Jesus said about leaving a legacy. And, and the topic Jesus is going to be speaking about today in this passage in Matthew 20 is about greatness. About greatness. And the path towards greatness and the heart towards how we can achieve greatness. So I want to just read Matthew 20. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit just to speak as we read his word. So I'm reading from the ESV version. You may have a different version, but hopefully you get the same gist from it. So Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. It's coming up on the screen. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling before Jesus, she asked Jesus for something. And Jesus said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you, are, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Then when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I got the chance yesterday morning to um, just watch a bit of sport. I don't know if you know, but there's so many sports around the world that are are kind of tournaments that are happening at the moment at like while I'm sleeping. Uh, So at the moment, the Women's World Cup is down in Oz and New Zealand, and they play at opposite times to us. And uh, I got to watch the end of a match yesterday or highlights of a match yesterday. And uh, I think it was Japan versus Japan versus... Norway, these huge Norwegian women and these little Japanese <laughs> girls. And Japan won. And it was like, it was great. It was like, wow, Japan's awesome. Amazing. And then after, straight after that, it was the um, women's netball, wasn't it? Women's netball. A few netball fans here. Um, a few twisted ankles. 
few broken fingers, um, but it was, it was the women's netball, and that was at 9.30 in the morning, so I was obviously watching TV too much in the morning, and um, it was like, wow, England, semi-final against New Zealand, and New Zealand and Australia, apparently the only people who have won the Women's World Cup netball World Cup, is that right? I don't know, any decisions, and England have beat, beat New Zealand, and they're in the final, amazing, what a great thing. My wife was very excited yesterday, jumping up and down, <laughs> watching with me. Um, and, and then what, what else is happening? There's loads of stuff going on. Greatness is something that, when we think about it in the world, is something that we experience and we see, and something that I think we value, don't we? We value great things happening. We value the fact that our children accomplish things. They finish their exams. They finish as part of their schooling. They, they do a play. They, um, they do, you know, they, they've done basically my, what my daughter's done, uh, Isabel, who's just finished year six. They've achieved something at the end of their school years. And it's a wonderful thing. We, we got the joy of uh, watching our daughter, Isabel, in year six do their end of year play at the end of term. They did a production of Mary Poppins. And you know what? It was amazing. As in, I think the parents were shocked <laughs> more than anything else. But they'd been working hard. They'd finished their sats. They'd been working hard for months to kind of do a production. And it was, it was to be honest, excellent. Uh, I'm so proud that I might send the video around or something. Um, but uh, <laughs> got the look. <laughs> but it was, it was when people around you whom you love excel and do great things, it's to be celebrated. Am I right or am I wrong? It's something that we as parents and we as those and families love to see those around us do well and excel. And I think when I think about myself, uh, I want great things for myself. I want great things for my loved one. And I don't think it's the wrong thing to desire great things. Uh, I want to be known as, hopefully not just known, but I want to be a great husband and a great dad to my kids. And, uh, and, and hopefully great in my work and great in my job and great to my neighbors and, and just a person who people think of as being great because that's what I want of my life. I want my life to matter. I want my life to count. I want my life to have an influence and to leave a legacy, just as Helen was saying last week. And maybe that's the same for you as well. But in this passage, when we think about greatness, and when the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee are James and John, they are two sons, sorry, two brothers, uh, and their mother, bless her, decides to come along and exert a bit of her influence into the situation, and she decides to say and come to Jesus, and she basically says in, in it's written also, this passage, this interaction is also written in Mark 10, and also in the Gospel of Luke, and they come with a, she comes with a desire for her sons, her two sons, um, to be, have a place of importance in God's kingdom. And she uses the terminology of being at the right hand and at the left hand of Jesus. And um, when we think about that and about her coming to Jesus, she doesn't have any lack of confidence, doesn't she? She comes and she kneels at Jesus' feet uh, unashamedly and says, um, would, you, would my two sons be able to sit at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. And there's no ashamedness here. There's no kind of like trepidation. She just goes for it. She goes straight to Jesus and asks for them to have a place of importance and significance in Jesus' kingdom. Now, we remind ourselves where, what is happening in the gospel right now. In the gospel of Matthew, um, if you take three verses back in verse 17, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And he's heading to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be crucified, knowing that he's going to be handed over 
to, to death and crucifixion under the Roman, uh, by, accused by the religious leaders and under Roman rule, he's going to be put to death on a cross. He knows this already. And his kingdom isn't the same kind of same kingdom that the disciples maybe are thinking of what uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee are thinking. They're thinking maybe that his kingdom is going to be one where Jesus is marching into Jerusalem to take political power and take influence and become a king and a ruler on the earth. And she wants her sons to be his right ha- at his right hand on that glorious throne and at his left hand on his glorious throne. You kind of see that, you know, if you're heading with Jesus, you want to be at the right place with Jesus, don't you? You want to be in a place of glory. You want to be made sure that when he sets up his kingdom, you're going to be at the right place, in the right position. You don't want to be the guy at the bottom. You want to be the guys on the right and the left. And there's no subtlety. Uh, there's no request uh, from their mother or from James or John to be the persons who would be faithful to endure with Jesus. Don't forget, Jesus has already told them he's going to suffer. Jesus has already told them that he's going to be handed over. He's already told them that he's going to be uh, put to death. Three times, actually, prior to this passage, he said this. So their request isn't to be the people or the disciples who are going to be with Jesus, helping him along, serving, have the privilege of serving him and supporting Jesus in his time of needs and suffering. They want, unashamedly, fame, power, position. And that's because they define their greatness in those terms. They have defined their greatness, or what they have seen as being great, as having power, influence, and importance. And it's easy for us, I think, to kind of look at them and kind of scoff. Any of you, kind of, when you read that, you know, come on, James and John, what are you doing? Come on. You know, um, you've got a, a tiger mum there, this is a Chinese term, somebody who's, you know, the mum's like really powerful and kind of does everything and, you know, for their children, serves them. That's a terminology we use in Asian culture. You've got a tiger mum there vying for you, giving you confidence, giving you kind of the, uh, the push towards being great in Jesus' kingdom. And we, maybe like the other disciples, because there were 10 others who kind of heard what James and John were doing, and they became indignant. Another word for that is angry or frustrated or angry at the situation. It's not fair. And we, like disciples, can often scoff and kind of go, surely, what are you thinking about, James and John? But when we look at our hearts, often we want that same acclamation, that same desire for well-dones, that same desire for wanting positions of power in our lives, if we're really true to ourselves. You may not admit it, it may not be at the forefront of your mind, but there's something deep within us that desires greatness, but desires it on our terms. And here in this passage, um, when we look about that, these basic desires, we discover that we have them as well. We have desire for recognition. Anybody? Yeah? We have desire for recognition. I think we do. We have desire for making, hoping that our lives will have some kind of significance or importance. Yeah? I think we do. We have a desire for attention. It may not be up front on a stage or dancing around, getting that kind of attention on YouTube or whatever it may be, but we want people to know us and to want us to have value out of that. We have those desires. Whether we kid ourselves or not, we do have them. So this morning, as we look at this passage, we need help sometimes to realize that sometimes our desires 
aren't always the way in which Jesus sets out what our desires should be. So my outline this morning is three simple points, and hopefully they, they are simple and, and we'll be able to take something from them. But my outline is really, we have a desire for greatness. Where does that come from and why do we have it? So it's point one, we have a desire for greatness. But secondly, that Jesus defines what true greatness is. And thirdly, how can we follow Jesus' ways in towards greatness? So where does our desire for greatness come from? Um, it's interesting when we think about greatness, because one thing that Jesus doesn't do is dismiss their request for greatness. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't go, you guys should know better. You already have had like three chapters prior to this about me teaching about what greatness looks like. It means to be like a child. It means to abandon yourselves to Jesus. It means all these things, but you're still asking selfishly for desire for greatness. He doesn't do that. He patiently takes them step by step and takes them through what greatness is. But where does that desire come from? Where does it come from within us? The desire to be known, to be acclaimed, to be recognized and celebrated. I think sometimes, especially in our world, it comes from a mindset that actually there's not enough power to go around. I don't know if I can just try and explain this, but sometimes we think that maybe there's a scarcity of power that's around. And therefore, me as a person, I have to grab as much as I can, put it into my, um, my world, my control, so that I can control it, so there's, there's, there's enough for me, and maybe, unfortunately, not enough for you. I think there's a mentality that there that there's like a zero-hour kind of idea that there's not enough going, going around, enough power or authority going around, and therefore it's a dog-eat-dog world to get as much as I can for myself and those whom I like and love, and therefore I've got to grab as much as I can as possible now. And I think that's a wrong mentality to have, especially when we think about it in the way Jesus thinks about it. There is good news that every single human being has the ability to have power and to create in the ways that God has created it for our good. It's actually interesting, as we serve people, and as we serve and we give our talents and we share our gifts, that actually we're able to release greatness in other people. For example, for those of us who are musical, when we look on the stage and we think, wow, Emma, you played so well on that piano, or you sing so well, or Johnny, or Dan, or Justin on drums, we think, wow, you know, that's amazing. These guys have got great skill and able to serve and to lead but actually, one of the great things they can do, and not a suggestion, but just an idea, is that actually by, not by hoarding it, but by sharing it, by offering your skills to someone else, you're able to empower them towards greatness as well. Do you kind of get the idea? That there isn't a scarcity of power, but your power is able to be used to benefit and to bless other people. Not just music, but maybe it's cooking, maybe it's your magical recipes, or maybe it's, you know, technical skills. You're able to share those things so that other people can have that ability and skill as well. So, but sometimes we think that it is a scarcity of it, and we have to hoard it and hold it, and therefore we can't release others into greatness. Maybe a second reason why we, want, we, we get so caught up with this life of greatness is that actually maybe we realize in ourselves that we're actually not that great. Sometimes we actually think uh, that actually when we look truly at ourselves and who we are and what we, what, we, what we think ourselves to be, actually we see that there's not actually a greatness within us. Maybe we think less of ourselves. There's a lack of loveliness within us. There's, we recognize ourselves and therefore what we do, and I'm guilty of this, that we compare ourselves to others. By recognizing that I'm not actually that great, 
but maybe actually I'm greater than this person, is actually causing me to diminish someone else so that I feel better. That's one out way working of how this, this, this lack of, I guess, compassion or this lack of ability to know myself comes from, that we choose to diminish others to build ourselves up. Or maybe we cover up or we mask our, our inferior qualities to present only the good things about ourselves. I don't know if you're like me, but that's, that happens all the time. And sometimes we therefore seek positions of power and influence so that we can actually build up ourselves rather than build up other people. We say, I want this position of power or influence to affirm that conflict within me. Does that kind of make sense? And it's pretty ugly when we see it worked out in the world, don't we? It's pretty ugly when we see people's selfish desires, when people are pushed down, oppressed to build others up. We see the ugliness come out in this world in so many ways. But often we are part of that, aren't we? That's what's happening inside of us every day. But rather than facing that ugliness or that conflict within us, what we do is we hide. We present the good parts. We just present the things that are presentable, the things that people would like to see and say, oh, yeah, that was great. Well done. But we choose to hide the ugliness. And it prevents us actually from looking into deep within us to what Jesus wants to address, that conflict in us, and actually that cry of help we need to transform ourselves. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. He takes the desires of James and John and their mother, and he chooses to not def- to just get rid of that desire, to say, no, kill it, Ugh, dead, don't have a desire for greatness, but actually to redefine what greatness looks like. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is so kind. He's so kind. When we, we, when we suddenly recognize that ugliness in us, he doesn't take a rod and beat us and chop it and, you know, mutilate us. He chooses to come alongside us gently in his grace and his mercy and takes us alongside and chooses to define what true greatness looks like for them as his disciples, but also for us as believers and people who want to see greatness come in our own lives. Jesus defines greatness as this. We're going to read from the passage again. He contrasts this. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever of you would want to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave. So in this short passage here, Jesus is contrasting what the world thinks of as, as greatness. He defined the greatness as being the world's or the Gentiles, if you want to use the words that are in the passage. He, the world is defined, great, defines greatness as being someone of influence, of having rule and authority and power and position. But Jesus uses a wonderful contrast here, and he says, actually, if you want to be great, and he uses the word, the key word is must, you must be, there's no options here, it's not, you could be, it's not an option, it is a must, imperative, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, he uses the word again, you must be a slave. Now, Jesus, <laughs> that's not, that doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> with my selfish ambition <laughs> and my own personal uh, frustrations and conflicts within me, I have to be a servant and a slave. It's going to be fun, this sermon, isn't it? Um, I need to be a servant and a slave. That is the path and the road in which Jesus defines greatness as. 
not as the world defines it, your power and position, but he defines it as servanthood and submission. Now, that's a road which Jesus not only tells the disciples to follow, he gives them the example to follow. So Jesus is the example. So true greatness is found in Jesus through his example. Standing before the disciples, James and John and their mother, is standing in front of them, the pinnacle, the fullest expression, the greatest beautiful expression of what greatness is, and that's in Jesus' servanthood to them. He uses these words in Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' example of servanthood is himself. He chooses as a Messiah not to come as the Messiah who had the right to be served by all of creation. He came as a baby. He came as a servant. He lived a life uh, of a carpenter. He came to serve and to save and to lift up people during his years of ministry on, on the earth. He came, his goal wasn't to be served, but to be servant of all. He came not with the goal that others would sacrifice to him, but to sacrifice for them. And this is really a great distinction of why we follow Jesus. A distinction of Christianity above all other religions is that we choose to not boast in great acts of service. We don't boast in serving Jesus. We boast in that God has served us. And there's a great distinction of what it means to follow Jesus. We serve not because Jesus needs our service, but because he has sacrificed for me and for you. And our service comes from that place. Jesus gives a wonderful example of servant. He gives the pinnacle of service in verse 17. Remember that on the road to Jerusalem, they're heading to, Jesus heading towards, headlong, unashamedly, walking towards his death at the hands of godless men and at the hands of the Romans under the cross. And he says these very words. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And the cup often in the Old Testament is used as a metaphor, as a picture, as an imagery of God's wrath, God's judgment against sin and against rebellion. So the cup Jesus is talking about here, the cup that he's going to suffer, he's going to abjure as he says to his disciples, is the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath and his judgment against humanity because of our sinfulness. If you remember in Luke, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus is crucified, Jesus says these words to his father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, this cup of judgment, this cup of wrath. Nevertheless, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. So when we think about what Jesus is giving an example of, he's giving his example of him laying down his life for the brothers. James and John could have paid for their sin. They could pay for it through their own death and their own judgment against themselves. But only Jesus is the one who can take the wrath of God and judgment for all humanity, for all of us sitting here, for all of the people in this world, and bear it on himself. Jesus is the true example of what servanthood and what suffering looks like as a slave for all of humanity. And sometimes we maybe don't see Jesus as a slave or as a servant to all. We see him as a conquering king, yes. And that is the glory that came through his servanthood. That is the glory that came through his suffering. 
and it reminds us that Jesus is our true example, which we are to follow. But still, I don't know about you, within me, the conflict is, is that, Jesus, you've called me to be a slave and a servant, just like you. What does that mean? My selfish heart is still aching here, because that's not what I want to hear. But that's what Jesus says is our path as people who follow him, as his disciples. True greatness is found through serving others, through serving our Lord. But it isn't, that isn't the strength in which we find. If, we, if Jesus was just to give an example of what service looks like, I don't think that would help us a lot. Because all of us would just kind of be like, okay, I've got to serve, I've got to do more, I've got to try harder, I've got to give more, I've got to sacrifice more. And that comes out of a place sometimes of, of begrudging or of kind of difficulty, isn't it, in our hearts. And what Jesus wants us to go beyond is just an, not just an example of service to follow, but actually he wants us to find our source of service, which comes from him. He wants us to find a place in which we as Christians will serve at a place of joy, of grace, of thankfulness, of, you know, just, just love, because something has happened in our lives. Jesus not only points to him as an example, but he points to himself as the source of salvation and service. Um, it's impossible, and I say this words with emphasis, it's impossible to serve God without first being served by Jesus. If you have been in church a long time, and, and maybe you're somebody who serves a lot and does a lot and things like that, we have to be really careful because sometimes service becomes something that's dutiful and becomes something that becomes um, something that, I don't know, it just becomes something that we do. But actually, the heart of a servant comes by being first, by being served by Jesus. And how does Jesus serve us? Let's look at what, how, James, how Jesus served James and John. Jesus served them by dying on the cross for them. You can't pay your ransom. You can't pay the penalty for your own sin. You can't change your prideful ways within you. Those feelings of, I need to be adored. I need to receive that. If I don't receive that gift, that, um, those words of encouragement after church this morning, I'm gonna, because I was playing you know, and serving today or serving tea, I'm going to get angry. That's the kind of heart that, that sometimes is generated through trying to do serving in our own power. But when we serve out a place of where God has served us first, it becomes a joy to be overlooked. It becomes a, a, a honor to be mistreated for the name of Jesus. It becomes a joy to sacrifice for the sake of his name. There's a massive change here. And Jesus leads James and John through that transformation. He says to them, will you drink the same cup that I'm about to drink? Will you drink the same cup that I'm about to drink? And in reality, when we look at the lives of James and John after this passage, in Acts and in the book of John, we're able, to, 1 John and 1, 2 John, we're able to see how Jesus' life and death and his resurrection actually transformed James and John's life. If you look at James and John in this passage, you see them as self-confident, ambitious, but in the end of their lives, you see them as humble servants who are able to live and serve with the gospel at their hands for the glory of God. Let's take James. You know that James was actually the first apostle to be martyred? We read it in Acts 12, verse 1 to 2. It says this, that James, at that time, 
Herod and the king had laid violent hands on some of them who belonged to the church. And Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James is the first apostle to be martyred out of the twelve. And I love how we can see God's view of James in that position. Psalm 16, 15 says, Precious in the soul of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the soul of the Lord is the death of his saints. I can just imagine in that situation with James on his knees, kneeling before Herod, served the church, loved the church, but at the end of his life, Jesus, Jesus, his Lord, looking down on him and just adoring him, precious in his sight. There was one self-centered, self-ambitious disciple, now humbly submitted to the will of Jesus, kneeling down before his executioner. What has happened since Matthew 20 and Acts 12? What's happened is that Jesus has died. Jesus has become James's ransom for his sin. Jesus has freed James from sin and selfishness and self-ambition. What about John? What happened to the disciple of John? John, his brother, would also be transformed by the gospel. John suffered persecution, and he was, at the end of his life, we understand that he was banished to the island of Patmos on his own. But we can read John's letters. It's a wonderful thing when you can read the disciples' letters and understand their life story. But Jesus, uh, John was the disciple who really understood the depths and preciousness of his Lord's servanthood towards him. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know, love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. What's transformed John from being the selfish, self-ambitious disciple to being the one who now says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers? It's Jesus who has died and become John's ransom for his sins. In Matthew 20, we don't see James and John serving their brothers, do they? We don't see them serving the other 10. <laughs> we see them going headlong after ambition and, and position and power. But I'm saying that if we try and serve out of a place of just going forwards and following just that example, without being served by Jesus, you will burn out. You will become resentful. You'll become angry. You'll become bitter. You'll become, remain self-centered in your serving the only explanation which can transform our hearts and has transformed the disciples' hearts is that we have been served by Jesus, by grace. We have been forgiven of our sins. And the power now that we have to serve does not come from within. It comes, it's generated by the Holy Spirit to serve others out of love for Jesus and love for other people. We don't serve out of a place where we have to suddenly just G ourselves up and make sure we're in the right place. We're served because we have first been served by our Savior. And out of that place, we serve with gospel power, with authority, and with love that only comes through him. It is Christ who laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to serve with our lives, our brothers. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served. And give his life as a ransom for many. So when you encounter somebody who has been served by Jesus, and when you encounter somebody who is serving you with that heart, what you should see is an example of Jesus 
but you should also see and you just know that their source of service comes from the Lord Jesus himself. You should see the source of their serving doesn't come, it comes through the fact that Jesus has been ransomed for them. Their serving should remind you of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's what it means to glorify God in our serving. It means that when we serve, when we choose to serve, when we choose to lay our lives down for other people, we don't do it so that others would glorify us. But it works in such a way that we therefore glorify Jesus and the honor goes to him because Jesus is working through us and we're not working for us. So what does that practically mean for us? Um, we have to serve with the right motives, don't we? We have to serve with an attitude of paying it. We can't pay Jesus back. We have to pay it forwards. I'm not sure if you've heard that term or seen the movie, Pay It Forwards. It's quite a fun movie, but the concept is, is that when someone does a good deed for you, you therefore choose to do a good deed for someone else in a practical way. We had a few friends of ours who moved house recently, and um, their, their, their people they bought the house from, they left them like a hot tub, and they left them all this other stuff, and them in turn selling their house, they're, they were on the chain and they were selling their house, decided to leave stuff for the next people who were buying their house. Does that kind of make sense? They paid it forwards. They had received grace. They had received mercy. They had received kindness from Jesus, and therefore, we pay it forwards out of love for Jesus. We choose to give with the right motives. Romans 13 says, we have a debt. We have a debt of love because of the love that Jesus poured out for us. The second practical application of what this means to serve is that we therefore don't just love people who love us. We are called to love those whom we love, but also friends, but also our enemies. Jesus' grace and mercy towards us had no bounds. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is our core church, to live and to serve as people who are debted in love, not just to those who would love us, but to those who are our enemies. That takes gospel power. That doesn't come from within us. That comes through a transformed person who's been with Jesus. Third thing, it means that we will serve in the mundane and the trivial things, not just in great deeds to be seen by others. Often it's the lesser deeds. It's the lesser things which reveal our hearts of service, isn't it? Jesus says, for the least of these, if you serve for the least of these, you're serving me. Yes, we can do great things, and let's applaud those things, but also Jesus wants us to serve in the mundane, everyday things and have that attitude of heart towards those in us, in our, in our circles. Maybe for some of us, we're called to serve our families. We're called to serve our children. We're called to serve our spouse, our husband or wife. How good are we at the moment, or are we serving them out of a heart that Jesus served us? That's close to home for many of us, isn't it? It's often very hard sometimes. The people who see us, who are in, living with us right now, are the ones who see our hearts the most. But Jesus wants us to serve our spouses, wants to serve our family members, wants to serve our neighbors, those who are in proximity to us daily, consistently, sacrificially, serving the mundane and the trivial. It also means, fourthly, that sometimes we, we serve not for reward or recognition in this world. It means our service sometimes is going to be done in secret. It's going to be done, it's people aren't going to see it. People aren't going to notice it. But the Father will have seen it. Our Savior would have seen it. And he's smiling. 
because he's not doing it. We're not doing it for our glory, but for his. Fifthly, we'll serve out of conviction and not out of convenience. Service is inconvenient. It really is. You want to go this way, service takes you this way. You want to spend your money on this, service takes you this way. You want to use your time to do this and that for yourself, service takes you this way. It is a different road. It's one not out of convenience, but out of conviction because you believe and you choose to take an attitude of a servant and a slave. I love how we, looked, we look at all the disciples, all of their letters, not all of the letters, but the letters which they write, um, which we get to see. We see in Paul, in Titus 1, he calls himself a slave, a servant. He introduces himself as Paul, an apostle, and slave to the, for Jesus Christ. We already read in Peter, Peter in his letters, he again announces himself not as Peter, the great apostle. He announces himself as Peter, but a bondservant, a slave for the sake of Jesus Christ. John, again, we've read about John. He introduces himself, again, what's the word? Slave, servant. That is their attitude as disciples, as followers of Jesus. They start their letters, they introduce themselves. Their identity is found in a servant of Jesus Christ. Not as a disciple who is sitting at the right or left-hand side of Jesus, but they choose to subverse themselves to his lordship. And church, as we choose to um, do great things for Jesus, because I think we do want to have do great things for Jesus, we want to have great things in our lives, what Jesus calls us to this morning is having an attitude of a servant because we have been served first. I want to close this morning by just... Um, I couldn't do it any more eloquently than this, but Martin Luther King has a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. The Drum Major Instinct. It's a wonderful sermon which I got to listen to over my time away on holiday. Um, and it, it speaks through this passage as well. Through Actually, it speaks through Mark 10, but it's a similar passage that Jesus is speaking to in the Gospels. And um, Martin Luther King um, is encouraging his congregation to seek greatness but to do so through service and love. And you can listen to this sermon online on YouTube. So just go search Martin Luther King, Drum Major Instinct, and you can listen to yourself. But I just want to end this morning by quoting from, from that sermon, just to the end, his closing uh, words. And hopefully this will encourage you. Dr. King says this, One would have thought that Jesus would have condemned James and John. One would have thought that Jesus would have said, You are totally out of place. You are selfish. Why would you even raise such a question? But that isn't what Jesus did. He did something altogether different. He said in substance, Oh, I see that you want to be first. You want to be great. You want to be important. You want to be significant. Well, you ought to be. If you're going to be my disciple, you must be. But he reorders their priorities. He says, don't give up this instinct. It's a good instinct if you use it right. It's a good instinct if you don't distort and pervert it. Don't give it up. Keep feeling the need for being important. Keep feeling the need for being first. But I want you to be first in love. I want you to be first in your moral excellence. I want you to be first in generosity. That's what I want you to do. So Jesus gave us a new norm, a new definition of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, it's a wonderful thing. If you want to be great, it's wonderful. 
but recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's the new definition of greatness. And the thing I love about that definition, in giving a definition of this greatness, it means that everybody can be great. Everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't need to know thermodynamics and physics. You just need to serve. You only need to have a heart full of grace, which is given by Jesus abundantly. A soul that is generated by love, and you can be that servant to all. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you give the power. You give the authority. You've defined what greatness is in your word. You've showered us, Lord, with your love and great, your great love and your mercy, that we've experienced your forgiveness. We've experienced freedom from death and freedom to live for you through your resurrection. So today, Holy Spirit, would you come on your people? Would you show us, Lord, how to love, how to serve? how to make a difference for your glory, not by being full of self-ambition, but by being servants for all and having a heart full of grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.